Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season three. Here's the monthly update with me, Jamie Plackett. I'm stepping in this month with the legal and campaign update. The team has recently welcomed some new associate members. Simon Kelly, who has been working on our social media, and myself. I've been helping with TikTok. We are still awaiting an interim decision from the Criminal Cases Review Commission and hope to have some news on this next month. We are also looking at other possible legal angles on getting the case back into the courts. We hope you will be able to join us for the memorial service, which will be held at next month's Facebook Zoom meeting on the 9th of August. You will be able to contribute to remembering Jeremy's family on the 38th anniversary of the tragedies at White House Farm. To be part of this event, you will need to join our Facebook group, Jeremy Bamba Justice Group. Please ensure you answer all the joining questions. That's all for this month. And now, on to this month's podcast. Today we cover the compelling and yet tragic history of White House Farm, the family home of the Bambas who sadly lost their lives on the 7th of August, 1985. The original house is first recorded in the book Excursions in the County of Essex, written by Thomas Kitson and published in 1819. It was then titled New House and later became White House Farm. This text not only mentions the house, but also the purchase of the property by the trustees of the Henley Smith Trust charity. The charity was set up by the wealthy London businessman and salt merchant Henry Smith in 1628. Born in Wandsworth during 1549, he was an astute businessman, making his fortune lending money to many landowners of his time. By the early 1620s, Henry was the owner of thousands of acres of land and the mortgagee of many more. Henry set out in his will that money was to be left to his sister, Joan, who he referred to as his poor kindred. He bequeathed further monies to the poor clergy. These benefactors continued to this day with grants issued by the Church of England on behalf of the charity. And a separate fund provides grants to relieve poverty in over 200 specific parishes named by Henry and the early trustees of his estates. The Henry Smith Charity has been helping combat disadvantage and poverty ever since, and today it's one of the largest grant-making charities in Britain, giving grants of £39.8 in 2021. The first property, White House Farm, was not actually located at the side of Pages Lane, where it can be seen today. The original farmhouse was built some distance away in the top meadow. However, when the available water supply dried up during the 1800s, a decision was made to move the house brick by brick to the location where it stands now. In the early 1900s, because there was a bumper harvest for all the farmers in the area, many farmhouses had work carried out on their structures, and this included White House Farm, which was extended at the front to give the distinct appearance the house has today. The four bedroom farmhouse as it then became, still remains as it was then, a large property surrounded by the extensive land for the growth of crops and a page yard area with barns. 
The yard has been changed somewhat with the addition of several outbuildings since the frontage of the house was expanded. The layout of the house is practical, although having three staircases can be somewhat confusing unless you know the layout, which is something that will be described now, with facts about the significance of these rooms in the shootings which occurred on the 7th of August 1985. We'll begin our mini tour of the house, moving from the front to the back. Opening the front door, you're met by a long hallway. The room on your left is the lounge, and to the right, the dining room. During the time the raid team was searching through the house, although there are conflicting reports of who actually did this, either PC Collins or PC Delgado opened the window in the lounge as an escape route. Obviously, at that time, the situation was very much ongoing as the officers had multiple indications that Sheila was alive and active within the house during this initial search time. The lounge is also significant because it is recorded by DSI Ainsley that Anne Eaton discovered a footprint on a magazine underneath the lounge window. It is documented that photographs were taken of this footprint and it was entered into evidence. However, oddly, by the time of his second report to the DPP, Ainsley now stated that this was a mistake and that no photographs were taken. And yet, on an exhibit list, the photographs of the footprint are recorded. The first set of stairs in the house, known as the main staircase, also led from this hallway, close to the front door, up to the first floor and bedrooms. It is these stairs from where a photograph was taken by DC Bird on the 7th of August, which showed the rifle propped in the main bedroom window at a time when Essex police claim they had not yet moved it. This photo alone exposes just one of the many instances of the police interfering with the scene. Moving down the hallway now, past the dining room and lounge, there are two smaller rooms, a washroom, also known as the shower room, on the right, and on the left, a large-sized box room, known as the bottle room. The shower room is significant, because it is through this window that the Crown assert Jeremy slid the catch on the sash window using a hacksaw blade in order to gain access to the house to commit the murders. The Crown's case was supported by the fact that a broken hacksaw blade was discovered beneath this window on the outside of the property and that the catch and window frame contained striation or scratch marks consistent with the teeth of the hacksaw. However, what the jury did not know was that at least six examinations had taken place of that window on dates throughout August and September, and no damage was seen during any of these examinations, which were conducted by different officers. This is confirmed in the 2002 appeal ruling, which stated no suggestion of finding any entry mark associated with the bathroom window. D.I. Miller also advised Robert Beauflower that police sophisticated equipment had failed to find any damage. The first time damage was recorded on this window catch and frame was on the 1st of October 1985, but again, the jury weren't told that D.I. Cook had removed and reattached this catch on at least two occasions prior to the 1st of October. 
It's also significant that it was on the 1st of October that the broken hacksaw blade was suddenly discovered, lying in plain sight below this window. Therefore, if it had been there since the 7th of August, why had it never been located and recorded before? The next room along the hallway is the kitchen where the body of Neville Bamber was found by the police. Recent evidence has determined that the likely cause of three burn marks to the neck and back of Neville was not the rifle with a silencer attached, as the Crown stated to the jury, nor were they caused by the rifle without a silencer attached, but by three component parts of the Arga, which was lit and hot when the police entered the property. In fact, the evidence now shows conclusively that Neville did not and could not have died in the precarious position, perched on the back of a kitchen chair, close to the wall and the aga, as shown in the crime scene photos. Evidence now suggests that he was moved long after he died and that it can only be the police who moved him. This is supported in the handwritten statement of raid team member PC Rosger, who stated that when he entered the kitchen, the body of Neville was against the wall alongside an overturned chair. Disclosure of the statements written by all the officers who entered the kitchen would assist us greatly, and we have requested that the CCRC, who are fully aware of the issue, obtain them. There is a second set of stairs in the kitchen which led to the first floor. They can be seen on the crime scene photographs located at the right-hand side of the Arga wall. The evidence shows that Sheila was seen in the kitchen prior to the police entering the house. Was it these stairs Sheila used to escape from the raid team and make her way upstairs after their entry to the property? Again, undisclosed statements may help to clarify the issue. However, we do have a statement by a raid team member, PC Hall, who heard noises upstairs from his location in the kitchen within moments of him entering the house. These noises caused him to shout up these stairs for Sheila to make her whereabouts known. What were the noises he heard? Were they footsteps or was it a shot from the rifle? Unfortunately, PC Hall failed to set this out. And moving on, there are two exit doors from the kitchen, the first leading to the dairy, an area where the family kept food supplies and equipment, such as the washing machine. The second doorway from the kitchen led to the hallway known as the scullery. And this is the area where Jeremy left the rifle and magazine on a settle following his attempts to shoot rabbits he had seen close to the farmhouse at supper time on the evening of the 6th of August. The scullery is directly opposite the back door, which the raid team had to break down to enter the house. The officers then moved to the right opening the doorway to the kitchen. It is recorded in the statement of police raid team officer Rosger that the kitchen door was open at that time and not one of the raid team mentioned any obstruction whatsoever being behind the door. In fact, images from the day show the kitchen door taken from the downstairs office and you can clearly see the blue kitchen bin and that there are no obstructions such as chairs blocking entry to that room. Also located off the scullery is the downstairs office 
where Neville worked on his paperwork for the day-to-day running of the farm. It was in this office that the so-called gun cupboard was located. This was not a locked or secure area, but simply a cupboard under the stairs where Neville kept his guns. The jury were told Neville was meticulous with gun safety and that when a gun was used, it was cleaned and put in a cupboard. They were also informed that Neville would never have left a gun out such as the rifle. Jeremy carelessly left out on the 6th of August. This was said to infer that Jeremy was lying. However, notes from Anne Eaton reveal that her brother, David Beauflower, took guns which were located all over the house to her home on the 10th of August, 1985. In fact, she even set out where each gun was discovered and this completely contradicted the Crown's assertions. But, yet again, the jury were not privy to these facts. The gun cupboard is also where David discovered the supposed single-case silencer, also on the 10th of August. This was then transported in a carrier bag to Anne's home, handled and examined extensively by wider family members, and put back in the bag, then ultimately into a tube from a kitchen roll. This was to preserve the forensics when it was collected from them by a drunken officer, D.S. Stan Jones, on the 12th of August. However, we know with certainty that the police found a silencer in the gun cupboard on the 7th of August. Both of these exhibits were examined forensically, sometimes on the same day by the same scientist. One had blood in it and on it, and a smear of red paint at the flat Musland. The other had blood contaminates, but in different places, and absolutely no paint on it until an examination on the 25th of September. And by now it had multitudes of paint flakes, some as big as 8mm in size, impacted into the knurled pattern. The results from both silencers were conflated in October 1985 and the jury were told there was a single silencer which had been involved in the incident. The truth is that no silencer was involved and the evidence was fabricated and this issue is set out extensively to the CCRC. Back to the house, next to this downstairs office was a third set of stairs which led to the first floor office directly above, although the door to access the upstairs landing was blocked from the stairs side. Now moving to the first floor, again the rooms are set out as if walking from the front of the house to the back. The first room you encounter as you climb the main staircase is Neville and June's bedroom, also referred to in case papers as the main bedroom. This is where the body of June Bamba was discovered in the doorway. The evidence now shows that June was moved at some point by the police as PC Manners gave evidence post-trial to DCI Dickinson's internal police inquiry that he stood over the body of June for a considerable time. He set out that her feet were towards the door. This is the complete opposite of what the crime scene images show with June's head and shoulders in the doorway. Sheila was also discovered lying deceased at the side of the bed after 8.10am. 
When she was first seen, she had a single gunshot wound and was not in the position shown in the crime scene images. We have substantial evidence of five senior officers and the doctor regarding the fact that she had sustained a single shot when she was first seen. In the evidence from the 1986 Dickinson inquiry, a further three raid team members gave evidence that in the crime scene photographs, Sheila and the Bible were not in the position they saw them in. This evidence is also with the CCRC, and we have released podcasts which go into the detail of these issues. Directly across the landing from the main bedroom was Sheila's room. The crime scene images show that of the two beds in the room, neither had been slept in, which indicates that Sheila must not have gone to bed at any stage of the evening of the 6th of August or the early hours of the 7th of August. Moving down the hallway to the left is a box room with direct access to the main bedroom. It is through the window of this room that firearms instructor Julia Jeeps gave evidence in her witness statement that just after 7am she saw a rifle in this window. A second officer, PC Brown, also described that after hearing five loud bangs when the raid team used a sledgehammer to enter the house through the back door, he also saw the same rifle in the window. We believe the sightings by Jeeps and the fact that Sheila had been seen by PC Collins in the kitchen coupled with the ongoing activity in the house that supports Sheila was alive caused the raid team to enter when they did. After all, it would now appear that Sheila was unarmed with the rifle propped in the box room window. Nevertheless, PC Brown stated that he was later told this sighting was not a rifle, but was a hose from a vacuum cleaner. It's odd that two firearms officers, one an instructor, cannot tell the difference between a gun and component parts of a vacuum cleaner. Likewise, it's also interesting that no photographs of the box room have ever been disclosed. Disclosure would establish if indeed there was a vacuum cleaner hose leaning against the window and, if there was, how likely it would have been that it could have been mistaken for a rifle by two experienced firearms officers. Next to the box room is the room the twins occupied, which also had an access door to the box room. It seems probable that Sheila, on escaping the kitchen and using the kitchen stairs, ran partly down the hallway through the children's room into the box room, retrieved the rifle which was propped in the window before entering the main bedroom. This was where she ultimately took her own life, at the side of the room closest to this access door. The children's room is also the room where, scratched inside a cupboard, were bold letters saying, I hate this place. The jury were led to believe that Jeremy had scrawled this into the inside of the door. However, one person had knowledge pre-trial about the real culprit. The person with the knowledge was Colin Caffell, Sheila's ex-husband. But he remained silent about this until his book was published in the 1990s, when he revealed that at Christmas time in 1984, Sheila had done this and shown it to him. Back to the layout of the house, to the right of the hallway and directly opposite the box room and children's bedroom 
is the room used by Jeremy when he lived at the farm as a child and young man. Adjacent to the twins' bedroom is the upstairs bathroom, whilst directly opposite this was a storeroom and the top of the stairs which led from the kitchen. Next was yet another storeroom, then the upstairs office area with stairs leading directly into the downstairs office and as set out earlier, this door could not be opened as it was blocked from the office side. It was in this room that Ainsley stated in his first report to the DPP that the police saw and photographed a telephone with the cord wrapped around it on the shelf. This is the same telephone that was discovered in a pile of magazines weeks after the shootings, which the jury were told that Jeremy had hidden there to prevent any of the victims accessing a telephone upstairs during the incident. Oddly, no photographs of the shelf where Ainsley had stated the telephone was have ever been disclosed. There was also access to the attic area from the upstairs landing and this was searched by police. A crime scene photograph shows a police officer smiling as he climbs from the actual roof hatch leading from the attic. Graffiti can be clearly seen on this image which states MIC-85. Why would a police officer feel it appropriate to gang tag the slates of the roof of the farm after such tragic events? But this was not the only selfie-style photos the police took that day. Images taken by DC Bird also show a police officer urinating in the garden close to the greenhouse, and one taken at a later date of a smiling officer in the fire pit. But the most appalling is a photograph in which two police officers can be seen through the kitchen window with Neville's body just feet away. These officers appear to be quite jovial whilst reading a copy of a tabloid newspaper. Obviously, these officers had zero respect for the deceased who remained in situ during this time, an indication of the mindset of some of the officers involved. Beautiful though it is, White House Farm has an extremely dark past, not just regarding the fate which befell the Bamber family on the 7th of August 1985, but on three previous occasions. Lives were lost in tragic and somewhat questionable or mysterious circumstances and involved several members of a family called the Pages, whom Pages Lane was named after. The first tragedy occurred in autumn 1887, within a mile from the farm, where the body of Orwell Page was found shot, the muzzle of the rifle under his chin. A piece of string was tied around the trigger, and it is believed this was used to fire the rifle with his toe. He was buried in St Nicholas's churchyard, Tolson Darcy, with the rifle beside him in his coffin. The second tragedy occurred in the house itself during late 1891 and early 1892. Benjamin Page lived at the farm all his life, taking over the farming business following the death of his father Orwell. On the 29th of December 1891, Benjamin, his daughter Florence and his wife Elizabeth's six-year-old daughter were home. Florence heard her 57-year-old father 
shouting upstairs and went to investigate. Florence discovered him being sick and in severe pain. A wrapper from a bottle of poison and a spoon were close by. A doctor soon arrived at the farm, but despite all attempts to save him, Benjamin died six days later, on the 5th of January, 1892. An inquest was held with the outcome that this was a case of suicide whilst of unsound mind. Elizabeth remarried and had two sons, Frank and Hugh, who passed away in 1950, having suffered a nervous breakdown. Following his brother's death, Frank confessed to a relative that he was having suicidal thoughts. In the early hours on the 10th of November that same year, Frank went missing from his room. A search discovered tyres from tractors were piled up against the side of a water well in the yard, which it appeared then must have been climbed by Frank, whose dead body was found at the bottom of the well. The pathologist stated there was no evidence that he drowned and it was more likely that chronic heart disease had been the cause of his demise, causing heart failure when his body hit the cold water. However, this was also determined to be a death by suicide. In 1951, June and Neville Bamber became the tenants of White House Farm, and of course, death and tragedy involving suicide and murder would affect this newly married couple and their family, as you all know. Since the fatal night of the 7th of August, the house has been occupied by Anne and Peter Eaton, Jeremy's cousin and her husband, who were also beneficiaries of the Bamber estate. They took up the tenancy as soon as it became available following the Bamber's deaths. So not only do they live in a house in which five of their family members died in tragic circumstances, which would we believe, deter the majority of people from living there. But the house has such a dark history that not many people would like to live there. To quote the campaign admin, Yvonne Hartley, I have twice seen the house close up and on each occasion the feeling of foreboding was tangible. So there is one more interesting fact regarding the farmhouse. As we see so often on the news, Houses where unspeakable tragedies and murders have occurred are more often than not demolished and gardens often created to remember the deceased. But with White House Farm, even though at least eight recorded deaths have occurred within the house and the grounds, four of the murders and four suicides, two years after the death of the Bamba family, the house was awarded the status of a Grade 2 listed building. We hope that you've gleaned some new facts about White House Farm and its tragic history today, as well as the disrespectful and appalling actions of police at the scene of such a devastating tragedy. If you're struggling with mental health problems, you can call the Samaritans 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You call 116-123, free from any phone or email joe at samaritans.org. 